0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Conversations with Tom. I am here today with somebody who I am extraordinarily excited to talk about, talk to Heather Hying. Thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Tom.
0: Absolutely. So you, um, we were talking just before we started rolling about evolutionary uh, biology, which of course is your strong suit. Um, And I want to dive right into that. There's Something going on in culture today where it seems like I think it was Douglas Murray that talks about how, you know, there were things that we all knew up until yesterday. And now it's like we're somehow it's, you know, become this weird thing where um, there's not agreement. And the one sort of taboo subject that I become absolutely obsessed with that you talk really eloquently about is the differences between men and women. And I know that like this is a hot button topic for people, but I I find it very intriguing, and I want to start. What is it that has made this a hot button issue?
1: Oh wow! What is it that has made it a hot button issue? I'm not sure I know the answer to that framed that way. Um, You know, some of it some of it is originally legitimate concern about traditional and increasingly archaic gender roles, right? And, you know, emerging from sort of first and second wave feminism, of which I'm a fan and I always identified with, um, you know, seeing seeing that there were socially imposed differences between male and female gender roles, some people extrapolated I would argue wrongly, that those differences were entirely socially imposed, that were in the language of academia a social construct entirely, right? And, you know, the fact is that we can see by looking at other cultures, by looking at non-weird cultures, by looking at what babies do, you know, before before culture has a chance to impose itself in the weird countries or in countries that don't have the weird influences insofar as that's possible anymore.
0: You um, might want to define weird for weird, people that yeah. have never heard that acronym before.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so weird, all all caps, acronym, Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, Democratic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, all the countries you would imagine um, you know Europe, Japan, US, Canada, and you know maybe including some of you know what what used to be called first world, but that's no longer exactly considered the the right way to describe it. So you know are are the things that we see between men and women that are different typically in those weird countries entirely a social construct? No, they're not. How do we know? Because uh, in other cultures, men and women are still different. Babies show differences in terms of, you know, girl and boy babies show differences in terms of what they do. Um, But there, there was for sure, at least, you know, we can think back to like the Mad Men era, 1950s, 1960s, gender roles in the US and see that a lot of people Clung to those in at least in the U.S. I mean that's you know, we're both Americans. We can stick to the U.S. because it's what we know best. And imagine that that was the way it ought to be. So this was there was sort of a an error in applying what was to imagine what should be. and the naturalistic fallacy. It's the same error um, that eugenicists make, that you know that um that social Darwinists make, that this the 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 thing that is currently what is going on in culture is what nature described or what nature needed it to be. and it's and that's just not true. So I think that there was, truly a legitimate and good faith pushback against that error. But in the modern era, it's become an activist talking point. And it's, you know, there there's so many things that activists are doing. You know, as, as you say, Douglas Murray writes about this brilliantly and talks about this brilliantly um, in the madness of crowds and, and in his interviews since especially. Um, it is it is remarkable how many things we appear not to know anymore that we used to know until yesterday and some of them are a little complicated and the th- the thing about sex with regard to are men and women actually different on average this just isn't complicated it's it is in some ways the most hot button of the topics and it's also the easiest one to to deal with because there's just so much evidence from 500 million years back, right? That we are sexually reproducing organisms that therefore have different strategies because we have, because there are two sexes.
0: So when I think about... Um what you just said seems so self-evident and the way that I've always walked through it is you're willing to accept that a woman has a uterus. So <laughs> that's obviously different than what's going on in a guy. You would think that there are areas of the brain that are going to determine what happens to that uterus. So it's like we're, we're comfortable. I think everybody is comfortable up until a point, but there's some weird moment where it breaks down where it's yeah. like, well, I was comfortable with that, but now I'm not comfortable with this. It And maybe you have already identified it, which is this, very sort of American ideal of the woman is staying at home and the man is going out and conquering that women are pushing back and saying, no, I can do more than just rear children. But if I were going to put like my finger hard on a point that seems to be um, what creates some of the fervor around this is that there is a sense that men have had it better or easier or something and therefore to have parity of thought and action and all of that is to um do it right and that's the part that I want to tease apart and you you and Brett dealt with this head on you did a video where is it better to be a man or a woman and you guys were very playful about it but like in all seriousness do you see in in a weird society using the acronym yeah Is there reason to believe it actually is better to be male and therefore that women should be trying to um, posture like a guy would typically posture
1: (laughs) yeah well i think that's actually that's two different questions both of which are big and important is it better to be a male in a weird society and if so is it is it the best move for a woman to act as male as possible in order to uh you know best realize her goals and aspirations uh the first you know in, in general, putting aside society, it is it is not right better to be male or female at the at just the evolutionary level. Uh, any any time either sex becomes more valuable, and that's sort of a metaphorical valuable in terms of being rare because a whole bunch of one sex has been killed off, say from war or um or infant mortality that Uh, Affects one sex more than another for you know any number of reasons. That sex that is more rare will become more valuable and more of that sex will be produced. Um, So you know it's easy to imagine, and this this is a question I used to ask my my students when I was was a college professor. uh, Whenever I taught this, which was most most programs that I taught, you know what what do you think? What's what's it better to be? And You know, usually they saw that it was kind of a trick question coming, but to to some degree I could usually get um, a few guys to say, well, it's better to be a a guy, and a and a few women to say, I you know, I I like being a woman. But of course it's not the, the the question, the ultimate question, you go far enough back, and it's not like what do you prefer? It's what is it actually better to be? There is no better. Right? Like we imagine just at just at the reproductive success level, you know, just talking about the the basic evolutionary stuff of how many copies of yourself do you leave in the next generation? We all have in our heads Well, Genghis Khan, you know, left however many it was hundreds of kids, right? Like hundreds of copies so of himself. Right. And how many kids has the most successful woman, most reproductively successful woman had it's some improbably crazy number like 67. And I don't, I don't, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So
0: how's that I, possible?
1: How is that even possible? Right. So lots of twins, Twins? lots of triplets and just, you know, started early, stopped late. Not a good life. (sighs) Right. Like not a happy life in in any way. And obviously the vast majority of women have an order of magnitude or less kids than that. Um, But almost all women reproduce some. And in a society where there's a Genghis Khan, there's a whole lot of men who leave no kids at all, who leave no, mm. who leave no mark in the next generation at the genetic level. So on average, you know, every guy in a stable population leaves about two kids and every woman leaves about two kids. But the variance, as is so, as is true across so many domains, is much lower for women. So
0: almost all, right. all women so are producing. I wanna... I want to get in here, though. And so that's at the population level. That's like an evolutionary thing. I get that. But like for me, technically, my life is sort of worthless from that standpoint. I've chosen not to have kids. Um, And but my life life, like the thing that I actually do on a day to day basis is awesome and I love it. And so when I think about so one thing I learned from having business partners, so you're building a business together, you get into an argument and you're like, this guy's a moron. And you're just like, how how can they possibly be thinking the way that they're thinking? And what I realized was, I know they're not dumb. They're incredibly intelligent. So when two smart people are disagreeing, what I found was there was a base assumption that they had that was going unquestioned. And once you get to the base assumption that's driving their their sort of surface level argument, then you figure out where things are really going wrong. So, for instance, if you were to say, well, it's what life is really about is how Traditionally successful, you are how much money you make, mm-hmm. how high you climb in a hierarchy, and that's what matters prestige, status. And so, if women buy into that, and now traditionally male traits feed into that aggression, um, you know, uh, working insane hours, and then society rewards that, and we all love the praise of society. Now you get how, if your base assumption is the highest value is that prestige, climbing the hierarchy, then you begin to understand why people would adopt traditionally masculine traits. So at the individual personal level, like here's what I really wanna know. And I'll give you sort of my like real secret sort of thing that drives, go ahead. Be-
1: be- before you say that though, let me just let me just jump in and say, um, in other primate societies and other species of primates, yes, there is, e- Every species of primate that is social, which is to say all but one or two, and maybe all of them, has male hierarchy, for sure, and it plays by some of the rules that you're talking about, and no, baboons don't have cars, but they have other indicators of status, right? But females also have hierarchy, and the thing that's super different about modern humans is that we are playing together in the same space, men and women, and having to create a mixed-sex hierarchy, so there's, you know, in baboons, which have been just studied terrifically, but also in vervet monkeys, also in squirrel monkeys, like all, also in every other primate society, there's male hierarchy with dominance and different ways to attain rank, and there's female hierarchy with dominance and different ways to attain rank. It's the mixing that makes it actually pretty complicated. And, um And it shouldn't be surprising to us that because because men have had the political power, you know, have had more of the power outside of the home, which is the more public facing domain, that in order to mix the hierarchies, uh, women are finding it somewhat necessary to act in ways that look a bit more like um, male hierarchy, male dominance um, attainment.
0: Now. Let's take that and ask a really naughty question. So in really trying to understand this. So I think um, it's going to be important to hear what you think are immutable characteristics Mm. and I will give you one that. So I had um, Lisa Feldman Barrett on the show and she has a great line when talking about nature and nurture, which is like my obsession. I can't tell you how much I'm into this. And she said, look, Tom, stop trying to untangle them. She said, we have a nature that requires nurture. So the brain is like waiting for this feedback. So if you don't cuddle a child, love a child, pay attention to a child, it doesn't grow up developmentally correct and it it will be broken in profound and just gut wrenching ways. Mm -hmm. So she said you really have to stop seeing the two as these separate entities and recognizing the interplay. So I get that what I'm about to say, I actually have no idea if you can like pull these things apart in my life. It has been in my marriage, for the first like eight years of my marriage, my wife was a traditional housewife. She facilitated my business career, but stayed at home. She cooked for me clean, put out my clothes, like all of it. And in those years, my wife worked through me. She was not inert. She wielded Mm -hmm. tremendous influence on me, the way that she would um, respond to me with praise or all of the feminine wiles that one has. And that notion of behind every powerful man is a powerful woman. I was like, that is so true. Like people don't understand how much my wife is shaping me and how much she's pushing me to do certain things to climb. And and truly, my wife has played a not insignificant role in my ambition in, in cultivating that and pushing that. Okay, I say that because when I think of possibly an immutable characteristic of women being that they use ideas that they use relationships, that that's their, their uh, weapons is, is, is a very misleading word. But like if a guy sort of takes confrontation on frontally, women are far more relationship oriented in how they move pieces around a chessboard.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And when I think about what's happening in society right now, this feels like a big mind game. Like people are fucking with the mind. And so it's like, is this a very um, useful female strategy being played out at the societal level?
1: Oh, God. God, there's like eight questions in there. Um,
0: (laughs) The final one was the one I was really trying to build towards. Now, what you have to give me in order to answer that, that's a a whole other thing.
1: So the final one being, is this a giant chess game um, that effectively uses uh, more traditional female tools than a more traditional male toolkit, as it were? Correct. Um, Yeah, I I think so, actually. And I think... You know this this thing that people say that you know the future is female and oh it's testosterone that is the problem with you know various power structures. You know I I don't I don't buy this. I th- I find it divisive and dangerous. But is it true that an entirely male power structure has a tendency to go off the rails in a particular way with which we're well familiar from like all of history? Yeah, of course, right? Um, would an all female power structure go off the rails in a particular way that we're less familiar with from history? A hundred percent. I don't want to see that any more than I want to see, you know, another World War II, which is more evocative of a typical power structure that went off the rails in part, I think, because there were very few things tempering a more male typical style of leadership and seeing relationships in the world. So we, we can do this together. There is very little precedent. Um, You know, there's no precedent for how many billion people are on the planet at this point. You know, we we are we are now acting globally at every scale. So we can't get it wrong, given the the actual weapons that are at our disposal. But the idea that we can pivot from a almost entirely male, you know, forward facing, outward facing power dynamic in the world to this other thing that people are calling for new entirely female um, way no, it's going to be it's going to be dangerous and there's n- very little history and so it will in in some ways be more dangerous at least it would be in some ways more dangerous at first because there's there's experimentation that would be happening in real time and frankly some of the conversation that I that I hear from. You know, again, it's a mix of activists who are just confused, and some some good faith people who really believe this, and some people who um, just want power for themselves, just want to reverse power. And we see this across all of these all of these current um, culture war fights. Um, but the idea that women in power is the solution is ridiculous. And the idea that, men resting power back from women and taking it all back for themselves and going back to some mad men era um, looking thing is also ridiculous. And that doesn't mean there's a clear way forward. That doesn't mean that it's going to be easy and that we should pretend that we can all just, you know, in work be unsexed and then, you know, and go home to our private lives and have whatever sexual relationships, you know, with undertones, with undercurrents that there are. No, it's not possible. So, one thing, you know, one thing that's illegitimate in what is being claimed in the current moment, I would say, is the idea that women, I mean, this is actually, I was, I've been reading The Madness of Crowds, so Douglas Murray's book, um, and, you know, his point about, about women in part is there is a claim being made that we are exactly the same, exactly as good as men, and yet also somehow better. Right, <laughs> and, right. Like it, and when you put it that way, and this, this is one of his his geniuses. Uh, you go, ah, yes. Well, that that is exactly that is exactly the problem. No, we we are. Different, And in some ways, women are better at, uh, at a population level at seeing some kinds of problems than men are. And men are also better at a population level at seeing some kinds of things than women are. And there will be some men who may be better than any women currently alive at whatever those female typical things are, and vice versa right? Uh, so, you know, this doesn't say anything about the limitations of you or me as a man or a woman listening to this, speaking this, right? This is about population level differences and then saying, okay, can we extrapolate then to what it is that, you know, you you as a little girl, you as a little boy should be aspiring to? No. Can we extrapolate to what does it mean when Given full freedom of choice, boys are more likely to choose jobs that allow them to work with things and numbers. And given full free choice, girls are more likely to choose jobs that allow them to work with people and relationships, right? That's, that's the thing. With, with full free choice, we still see those differences. And that difference does not inherently suggest patriarchy or oppression or misogyny or sexism or any of it. Um, it, it might but I see very little evidence for that in the modern era, frankly.
0: So that's a great uh, enunciation of one of the often talked about sort of immutable characteristics of men and women. And, and I, I, I will take it um, as self-evident that you very much agree that for the most part, we overlap and we're really talking sort of about at a population level or at the edges. Um, and so I just want to say that. So for anybody um, building a case against your argumentation, that that, that be stated. Um, now, one thing I'm curious about, are there other immutable characteristics or or maybe immutable is the wrong word that that are um, just so correlated, caused by, I'm, I'm not sure what the right word is, but that that we would expect to see. So, if if you have men go for things, women go for people. Are there other things?
1: Yeah. Um, so one of my one of my favorite this is this is not from weird countries, but one of my favorite pieces of research that I talk about uh, when I'm talking about sex differences is a review of the work that men versus women do in across 50 pre-industrial cultures. So it's work that was published in 1973. So from cultural anthropo- anthropological work from before that, um, at the moment, you know, in 2020 when we're talking, it's really hard to find really any hunter-gatherer people, for instance, that aren't affected by by the modern world. Uh, but in 1973, it still was, and they were looking at, at at research that had been done um, throughout the 20th century, with you know, I, I can make all the caveats about a lot of ethnography wasn't done very well, um, and it was done with sort of a culturally imperialist attitude sometimes. But put all that aside, and imagine that all of the error um, was hopefully somewhat random and not um, systematic in terms of looking at. For They looked at 185 activities, these people who were reviewing all the anthropological literature, from, you know, weaving, to water getting, to um, basketball, basket making, to fishing, to hunting of large marine mammals, to iron smelting, right, to gardening, and for... These 50 cultures, they said, okay, um, is it a male-only activity? Is it a female-only activity? Is it really whoever ends up at the place where they need to do the thing, or is it mostly male or is it mostly female? So these sort of, you know, this this scale of, you know, how gendered is the activity, and if it's gendered, which gender does it? There is, and of course, it excludes the things that are anatomically and physiologically mandated. We're not talking about gestation, we're not talking about lactation, right? But Gestation and lactation are exactly the things that end up causing these sex differences at the behavioral and the cultural level to sort of cascade, right? That if you are, uh, you know, eight months pregnant or have a three-month-old baby who is not weaned because three-month-old baby shouldn't be weaned yet, um, it is not. A good idea for you to be going out on the open ocean hunting whales right like that's not something that women um are going to want to do It's that could be good for them they're going to put the other people at risk you know all of these things so sure enough there are a few activities uh, that these researchers found that are just exclusively male like hunting of large marine mammals iron smelting these things you know smelting of ores these things are male activities in all of these pre-industrial is it, cultures. Is it
0: stuff specifically to do with high risk of death?
1: That's what it looks like to me. And that, you know, the analysis, it's hard to do the analysis to know the answer to that for sure. But high risk mm-hmm. and, um, and also, you know, high, it's not that women aren't strong, but having like high burst strength right? Like being able to move really quickly as soon as you need to. And, you know, women have that, but not at all points of our reproductive cycle, right? Like, you know, when you're pregnant, when, when, you're, when you've got a baby on the breast, you, you can't do that as much. So are there things that are not anatomically and physiologically mandated that are really female-only gendered across all cultures? Kind of not, like there are things that are that are in most cultures that have been looked at more likely to be women's activities, things like um, cooking of vegetable foods and gathering of vegetal foods. Right. Uh, whereas cooking of animal meat uh, is is more likely to be male. So, I mean, we see this in our backyards.
0: Why? Right. <laughs> That's so true. I literally right. never thought of this. Why?
1: Well, um, I, you know, I think, and again, this is not part of part of this research, but because men are mostly doing the large game hunting, and you know, women in hunter gatherer societies, and this is going to be this is going to vary across what kind of ecosystem you're in and such, but women are doing small game hunting, but men are doing large game hunting, and you basically need to butcher and prepare to some degree um, in order to get the thing home because you don't hunt the thing right next to where you live. And so in order to to get it home in such a way that it's not already rotten, uh, you probably have to be skilled at doing some of the prep um, out in the field. And, you know, once once they have those skills, get them home. And um, and, you know, it also then is a is status. And, you know, this plays out differently in different cultures. But, um, you know, who who actually Uh, Did the killing gets to decide in some cultures to what degree the meat gets distributed and to whom and sometimes the meat gets distributed to the females of the family and sometimes it gets distributed to the men and you know all of these things are variable and it would be it would be ridiculous to say oh in those cultures where the men distribute the meat to men that's the patriarchy because there are other cultures where the men distribute the meat to women and the fact is that families feed each other right no matter you know no matter how how it works within family units it doesn't it no family units that persist into the future starve out one of the sexes and that's not to say that there haven't been terrible you know terrible instances of babies right babies of one sex or another being preferred but once we're talking about adults you know women women get meat and men get meat and how it gets distributed varies by culture and that's you know that's interesting but um one last thing about this this piece of research that I think is fascinating is there are a lot of highly gendered activities like um, I didn't pull it up and for this um, I think like uh, I think basket weaving is one of them and loom work that are oh and ceramics pottery making that are highly gendered but it depends on what culture you're in which gender it is and so there is That's utility. So weird. So there's utility in having an activity be like, okay, that's man's work or that's woman's work. But there's nothing inherent about the activity that makes it more, more likely that men or women should be doing it. There's nothing in our brains or our bodies that are differently capable of working with clay or with fabric or with, or with yarn. Uh, but there does seem to be some utility across almost every culture looked at, such you know, a as Other than weird cultures where we're just mixing it up and we're all doing to some degree all of the work if we want to of saying okay that thing is man's domain that thing is woman's domain and you therefore know if you're doing that thing you know what sex you are and if you're holding that thing you know you know something about the person who made it so you know there's there's of cultural meaning
0: there's something here that I, I don't understand so um why would it become gendered? Like, why would this society, who I'm sure isn't sitting down, you know, with like a a council saying, all right, we should gender this stuff, you know, right. what do we do where? It just sort of comes out. Why would you gender something? Why, yeah. like, if 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 across cultures we see, men can basket weave, women can basket weave, then why do cultures gender it?
1: Yeah, So so another way of asking that question would be, what is the value of division of labor? right? Like why, why do we have specifically
0: by sex?
1: Well, um, I would say because it is this category sex, you know, almost nothing about what the differences between men and women are, are what I would call immutable. But sex is right, like sex is ancient, it's hundreds of millions of years old. And, um, and that you know, intersex exists, you know, all of that, we can go into all the caveats, but the fact is that the vast, vast, vast majority of human beings who have ever lived are male or female. And the gender roles that come from that, that is to say the behavioral manifestations of sex are something that are also, um, also old within cultures. And so there are often also division of labor between a, age groups right like so old people in some cultures do the childcare, leaving the able-bodied parents of young children to do the more physically demanding labor so that you can you can argue with regard to that okay i just in fact i just i just gave you an example that looked like well it's because older people can't do the physically demanding labor so they're Mm going to do the parenting that then when their children grow up to become grandparents they you know they will do the parenting why divide things by sex when there's nothing mandating it at the biological level because it is a a category that is real and division of labor is valuable and division of labor is not inherently divisive or oppressive i mean i think that's that's maybe the the key point for me here is that just because you have difference just because you have d- division of labor even if that difference is somehow brought about by cultural norms and enforced by cultural norms, that does not mean that the work is either better or worse based on what sex you are or what group is doing it. Often you get this overlay Often I would say it's afterwards of, ah, well, then that's woman's work. Therefore, we're not going to value that as much. Therefore, to some degree, you know, the economic model that, um, that reveals the work that is more outward facing is going to pay more. And so women's work is literally devalued because it's not paid as much. Right. But that, I would say, is a later overlay that the value of division of labor is actually far older than anything having to do with oppression or patriarchy or any of these you know, modern lenses through which we tend to be viewing gender roles.
0: Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. If getting your hands dirty and taking good care of your car or cars is a passion of yours, then eBay Motors is here for the ride because I'm sure you remember when you first saw the potential in that beauty. And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running so there's two ways to look at that. You've got the notion of categories being very useful. And mm-hmm. I want to talk about that in a minute. Um, and then you also have, uh, which to me seems a, a necessary question to ask, which is how much of this has to do with the act of sex complicating things or Mm. that you begin to um, create different norms or ways of communicating. So, for instance, um, this is I've never articulated these things out loud, so bear with me as I sort of fumble through this. But um, I have worked in groups that were exclusively men and I've worked in groups that were um, mixed. It is much easier to work in groups that are exclusively men for me as a guy, Mm -hmm. but it is more productive to work in mixed groups because you get heterogeneity of ideas. And Mm -hmm. it's it's just that we'll talk about the the friction of that in a minute, which goes back to this notion of categories which are useful. And I think anyway, we'll get to that in a minute. But um, the ease with which you can communicate because you can come up with rules of engagement very, very easily among guys where it's like, look, I'm going to call you a moron, an idiot, a fucking whatever. Just go fucking do it. I'm I'm not going to worry about your feelings. The number of times where I've had because my wife and I are business partners. Yeah. And the number of times where I've like, I don't have the fucking time right now to think about your feelings and and she like gets it. But I don't like I don't value my way of doing that. Like when I do that to her, I'm like, ugh, like because I get from her perspective yeah. that's not helpful or useful. And yet. I'm like, oh, but when when you're with guys in my life, modern context, I have no idea how much of this is innate, but it's just easier in my experience to come up with rules of engagement. Yeah. How much of that do you think is playing a role in the fact that eh, whoever does basket weaving doesn't matter, but we're going to isolate it. It's going to be all men or all women.
1: Yeah, no, I, th- I think that's huge. I think that's a, a tremendously apt observation. And just like I said, you know. Primates have been doing this, these separate social hierarchies for tens of millions, over 100 million years, and here we are mixing it up, mixing it up between the sexes and pretending that it's no biggie. And of course it is. Of course it's going to be tough. Of course there are going to be challenges. And you know, also it is true that um, because um, men are bigger and more powerful on average, women tend to use power that is more covert, um, and that goes around behind and, um, and uses language and whispers and, and such. And that is harder to shut down than the traditional male kinds of power. Traditional male kinds of power, when it, hap- you know, it happens in front of you, you're like, wow, dude, that wasn't okay. You can't do that. And it's p- because precisely because um, women's kinds of power has been less obvious, it's harder to point to. And it's harder to shut down and we really ought to be, you know, looking to shut down all of the illegitimate uses of traditionally gendered power of any sort when we come together to try to work together. And, um, you know, the thing that you said about all male teams are easier to work with, but the mixed sex teams are more productive. That is that's beautiful and um i have i have an anecdote that isn't exactly analogous to that but i think also will add something here which is i used to play ultimate frisbee a tremendous amount well, and so um, you
0: ruptured your Achilles heel? Oh i know uh, this story.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. Um and i was i mean i i played i actually played on the traveling team at university of michigan um when i was in grad school there uh and um and i and I captained a lot of Summer League teams. So, like, I, I really, for a while, was playing, you know, practically every day for several years. And I loved it. And I, you know, I went to a lot of tournaments where I got to watch all men's, you know, men's games. And I played on a women's team. And then I captained a lot of co ed teams and played pickup with a lot of, in a lot of co ed situations. And watching a men's game was, not all that interesting. I love watching male athletes, but it just wasn't all that interesting because it was these long, you know, ultimate frisbee is um, kind of like, I don't know what it's like. It's kind of like soccer, but with a frisbee. Like you can't, it, that's, I don't even know what it's like. But for for those who, who don't know, you're trying to move a frisbee down the field to the end zone and the, the all men's games tended to be a long huck with a long run into the end zone and a catch. And these points were brief and there was glory for like two people and the rest of the players like, okay, I didn't get to play. Right. And the all women's games, either when I was playing them or watching them by contrast, I found relatively uninteresting for like the opposite reason. They were more careful. And you know, these are athletes. Like we are, we are skilled athletes. We're not you know, we're not wallflowers, we're not unable to handle the disc, but there were very few long hooks. And like I, I like a long hook, I like to run for them, but there was a whole lot of short passes and also, just like you say, a a tendency to try to make sure that everyone handled the disc, right? Like that everyone gets play. And that's great in a pickup game, but when you're in competition, that's actually not what you're supposed to be doing. Whereas the, the co-ed teams for me anyway, had this mixture of both. So you had coming from sort of the female side an impulse to actually not not never throw it to those two people because they might be more likely to drop the disc, but actually they're our teammates and we're all playing this game together and what are you trying to do? Just win or actually have a good a good game for everyone. And there was the sort of the pressure coming from the men to like, okay, let's make it faster. Let's throw it long. Let's get some high energy. Let's get really excited when we do this and, you know, celebrate the guy or the woman who caught the pass in the end zone and had to lay out. So, you know, you have both of those things coming together in a single team and, uh, and it was, it was beautiful. And yet there was never any pretense that we weren't different. Right. So on a, just one more thing about ultimate, um, you know, it's seven people on a side and on a co-ed team, you always tried to match the sex ratio because if you had four, three on one side, if you had four guys and three women on one side and five, two on the other, who's the woman who's playing against the guy on the other side? And you every, every, you you line up, I mean, you don't always, but like you line up against who you're going to be defending against and the guy, A, can see that he's going to be up against a woman And so that affects how he views himself. And the woman can see, okay, I'm up against this guy. And maybe he's the slowest guy on the team, but he's still a guy. And he's still going to have better, you know, higher burst speed probably. And he's probably a little taller than me and so can reach higher. And, you know, there's going to be differences that aren't inherently true for all individual men versus individual women. But at a population level, men are faster, men are taller, men are stronger, men have higher burst speed, all of these things. So um, the mixed teams in Ultimate were amazing to play in, and we never, ever, ever pretended that there weren't differences between us. And I mean, I think that's what we're shooting for in in life, right?
0: Yeah, see, that to me brings this to where I would love to see the conversation get where it's not pathological and people can... Yeah. Um, yeah. get to what is useful. So my obsession in life is what is useful? You have a goal and what's the thing that moves you to that goal? And so I just always default to that. Now we can talk, if you have a goal that's pathological, now we've got a whole different problem. But once somebody can clearly articulate, this is my goal, then use the scientific method to go, well, is this thing you're doing getting you to that goal or not? It's what I call the physics of progress. Mm. And there, just it. there is a nature to getting closer to a goal. You try something. Did it work? Yes or no. You look at the data, you're honest about it, and then you try again now more intelligently. And one of the things that seems when I think about out of society, going to a place that leads to more fulfillment for everybody. Okay, Mm -hmm. so that's my goal. I want fulfillment, not not just momentary happiness, but like deep, profound fulfillment, doing hard things to serve not only yourself, but to serve the collective as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's what we're aiming at. What's going to be the thing that gets us there? Categories seems to be a very useful part of that and the reason for me is um i read a study or heard an read an article somewhere that basically said there's there are cultures that can't see certain shades of blue because they don't have a concept for it they don't have a name for that color blue and therefore you just try to take all the different shades that you see and crush them into the the same little boxes like us and snow right mm-hmm. yeah it's snow. maybe we have hail sleet snow but that's sort of it and then you hear the joke whether it's true or not i don't know the eskimos you know have 300 words for snow because there's so many different types and textures and therefore they're able to discern between those things okay i read this book called rocket fuel in the book rocket fuel it talks about how you actually for a company to be successful you need two types of leader you need one that's a visionary and then you need one that can execute on the vision and the book hypothesizes it's actually very rare that one person can do both. And so you need this sort of dynamic duo. And one of the ones that they give as a great example is Disney. You had Walt Disney, visionary. You had Roy Disney, the one dealing with the banks and making sure that they could actually pay for things. And if you read the biography on Walt Disney, you realize, whoa, without Roy, this never would have gone anywhere. So now when I think of men and women as categories, I think it's actually pretty important to be able to figure out like what these categories are so that we can find this, what I call the productive friction. So in a business, like my wife, for instance, is the executor, I'm the visionary. And I have worked with partners in the past that had that same dynamic, but they resented each other. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching it going, this doesn't make sense. Like you're both extraordinary people. But until you understand, and, and you and Brett actually talked about this, if the bird thinks that the wind is holding it back from flying faster and imagines that it will fly faster in a vacuum, but in reality, of course, that bird will plummet to the ground, that's what I'm talking about. So to me, men and women as categories, the, the friction of thinking differently, of approaching the world differently, of saying, in this case, to my wife as a, a business runner even though I don't pick up on the things that you pick up on. And honestly, sometimes I find them very frustrating because they slow me down or whatever. I acknowledge that if it is just it, like if I were to indoctrinate everybody on the team or only hire people that think like me, we won't get as far as if you and I acknowledge that the friction between our worldviews and the way that we approach things creates a healthier company. And so while yeah. we at times get frustrated with each other, in recognizing that we are different, in recognizing and putting a finger on these are the ways in which we are different. And now we understand why that's valuable. We're able to make more progress. And so when I see people trying to know there is no difference, I'm like, whoa, you're, you're getting rid of these categories of usefulness.
1: Yeah. No, I I think, I think there's a lot true there. The one thing, and I've heard you talk about before about the sort of difference between the visionary and what was the second category that you called it? The executor, the,
0: the executor. Yeah. Somebody who, who the operations officer is usually the role it becomes. There
1: it is. Okay. So like the operations officer versus the, um, the visionary, um, the one, the one way that I, Hesitate about endorsing this this view is that because it's a dichotomy, because it's a binary, um, it would appear to map onto the male female dichotomy, and um, and something very deep in me resists that quite strongly. And that's not to say that. Um, For instance, I think our modern understanding of things like executive function, of being able to, you know, organize and schedule and plan and sort of think into the future and figure out, well, if this is happening Thursday, then this other thing can't happen until Friday, um, is, I think, more likely to be – Highly capable in the minds of more women than 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 men, right? Um, but and in fact, there's some there's some really interesting research um, that calls this um, detail versus gist, and finds indeed that That's women are more able across a lot of domains um, to do detail details sort of work and men just sort of work. And so that that seems again like a little bit of a, a map for what you're talking about, sort of um, operations officer versus visionary. Um, just so but, you
0: know, and I don't know if it matters. I I don't map them that way.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, and I I hear you not mapping it that way, and I and I appreciate that. I think, I think others will, and I think um, that is part of the legitimate pushback that we are seeing in society from people who then go on to make extraordinary and ridiculous claims about there being no differences, uh, because will will the visionary nature of women tend to look different from the visionary nature of men? Tend to, yeah. It probably will. And will some will some female visionaries have visionary natures that look very much like male visionaries have in the past? Yes. But it's more likely that it will come looking a little bit different and will therefore be a bit harder to recognize perhaps um, by a cultural and economic system that has made it more difficult for women visionaries to, to have their visions be, be revealed. And I also suspect that... Um, so there's this result that i haven't been able to track down but i used to report out on a lot and i i hope still stands uh which is so we have we have a left and a right brain right so we have we have a uh, cerebral cortex that is bigger in primates than any other mammals and bigger in humans than any other primates and it's where our memory happens and our reflection on the past and our imagining of what's going to happen in the future and our analysis and our abstraction and it's, they're split between left and right, but we have this band of fibers, the corpus callosum that connects them. And so you can ask, and it's a question that I find endlessly fascinating. So you know, what's what's the advantage of splitting it in the first place? And then what's the advantage of reconnecting it? Like if, if you wanted it reconnected, why did it split in the first place? Well, sometimes you wanna hide some things from yourself. You wanna be able to do something over here that this part of your brain needs to just like keep walking or something. And that, that's a ridiculous example, but that you, know, you don't want to be d- disturbed by. And women are one of the demographics that actually have a larger corpus callosum. Um, And so it's, they're they're also, um, if memory serves, and again, I haven't been able to find this research, so I hope I'm not wrong, but it's women, it's homosexuals, and it's also left-handers. So have a larger corpus callosum than men, straight people, and right-handers. So is having a big corpus callosum good? Well, that's like asking, is being male good? Is it better? No. Under some circumstances, yes. So you know, what kind of work do you want to do that actually makes the connections, that connects all the parts? That's going to be part of what, at just a gross neurological level, your corpus callosum is for. What kind of work do you want to be able to do where you dive deep and you unitask and you are not at all disruptable, even by the people who want to be disrupting you to tell you that your house is on fire or whatever it is? Well, there are times when that's going to be the better thing, right? So, you know, which is... The, evolu- the naive evolutionary question, which of these things is better, is exactly that. It's naive. So, you know, is is a male style of being more likely to be able to be focused, to be hyper-tuned to one thing, to emerge days, weeks, months, years later saying, aha, eureka moment, I've got it? Probably. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not totally possible within, you know, within women as well.
0: Ooh, this, this is really interesting. Um, and that gets to the article that you wrote about toxic femininity and how mm. if we're going to talk about toxic masculinity, then we have to be willing to look at the flip side of that coin. Jordan yep. Peterson also talks about that in, in a way that I find very interesting, which is, look, um, sort of the male way of being when taken to the extreme becomes tyranny and the female way of being when taken to the extreme becomes chaos. And mm. I thought that's really interesting. I don't know how you feel about that. Before you answer that, hmm. I will say um, one of the things I love about conversation is you show me how I'm coming across versus what I think I'm presenting. So on the um, the dichotomy between a visionary and an executor, I actually don't think that has anything to do with sex. I think you're going to find that there are let's say it's equally distributed 50-50, you're going to get 50% of women are visionaries, 50% are executors, 50% of men are visionaries, 50% are executors, even though and I have no reason to believe that's actually true. I'm just saying my experience is not borne out that that's a male female divide, only that it is a category and the category is useful and that I think that there is similarly the categories of male and female are useful. And so what you're just saying Here is a true statement about my life. I, I, much like you and Brett got together very young, Lisa and I got together very young. And I don't know who I would be without Lisa. Mm. And when I think about from an evolutionary standpoint, evolution just saying, oh, we're these two sexes are going to co-evolve. And so they are going to influence each other. I'm And nature, blind watchmaker, totally buy into that. But just for way of analogy so people get where I'm going here, if you think of nature as saying, I'm not interested in these species, or sorry, these sexes in isolation. I'm not going to design them in isolation. I am going to design you entirely, assuming that the other one is there. And so now if you strip away those categories, it sort of breaks how we've come together. And going back to that sort of magic friction of, it is in the difference that the magic happens and that once if culturally we try to beat the difference out It will actually cause Problems.
1: Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree with that. I um, it is It's not only a denial of the real differences um, But that denial is itself going to cause giant problems exactly as you say um to your point about what Jordan Peterson said, I have not heard that before. So I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of him, of his work. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but what you said was basically male power taken to its extreme tends to tyranny, and female power taken to its its extreme tends to chaos. That's what you reported that he said.
0: Yeah. So yep. the the way that he so woo me putting words in Jordan's mouth is <laughs> right. a very dangerous game. When I say that that sure. man is magnitude smarter than I am. Whoa. Um, so. I will say in his book, um, The Twelve Rules for Life, I think the subheading is an antidote to chaos. Now, if you've read maps of meaning and you get where he's going in terms of um, the female being essentially nature itself because it leverages sexual selection and that the male must do things to please the female in order to have their progeny move forward, Um, And I forget the exact reason why he refers to it. Oh, it's it's the unknown. So chaos to him is the unknown, not oh, they're all over the place. Just that there is this sense of the new, the unknown that you must sort of venture out into. And there's and I'm doing a terrible job of explaining this. So I really wish he could speak for himself here. Um, But that notion of nature itself being the element of chaos of new of change.
1: Um, so we, we should, we should have him in this conversation, right? Yeah, no question. Uh, so I'm
0: going
1: to, I will try, I'm going to try to respond without responding to what he may have, may have said. Very, very um, prudent. I, I have heard so many renderings of what he's said by other people. And I know you're not trying to do this, but in which people intentionally misrepresent him and he comes across as some misogynistic crank and he's not, you know, he's, he's neither. Totally agree. um,
0: What he says in the book is it feels so right and doesn't feel disparaging in either direction.
1: Yeah. So I have not, um, truth in advertising here. I've, I've not read maps of meaning. I have read 12 rules. Um, and I've spent a little bit of time with, with the man myself and with his wife, and um, they're both just you know, wonderful people before before all of the current unfortunate medical problems that they've been having. Um, at first pass, the idea of male power taken to its extreme leads to tyranny, um, would appear to be borne out by history, but um, it's not clear to me that that's the only way it can go. And female power taken to its extreme leads to chaos. That, that doesn't quite... That, I can't quite make that match what I what I think would happen. I think um, you know we haven't seen an entirely female-powered system, um, but I think it would just as equally lead to tyranny. And it might, in some ways, do so faster, um, precisely because the kinds of ways um, that women have been able to affect change in the world have been more covert. And so um, there would be more covert ways to um, to to change rules in a in a purely in a purely female system. I, I honestly, I can't even, I can't even quite imagine what it looks like but I think unfortunately unchecked power of any sort male female any other sort that we might want to categorize it as will ultimately lead to to tyranny um so maybe I'll just stop there rather than dig a hole trying to try, trying to guess at what what he meant because my my impression is well even when,
0: worse trying to guess at what he meant after hearing me <laughs> right, bastardize right. it and describe it probably wildly incorrectly um, but it is interesting to think about what um, female tyranny would look like. And the reason I asked my earlier question about do you think what we're seeing now is basically that that's my hunch. And in yeah. in no way disparaging women whenever something goes, the you know, my thing is the friction us working together with good faith. Like that's the magic. Yes. The magic is is recognizing Oh, I could go wrong. As much as it all feels right, like every time I'm in the middle of, you know, doing something that I just have all this like massive certainty and conviction about, I'm always checking myself with, "Hey, it always feels right until like the shit hits the fan and you realize, "Whoa, I've been going the wrong way for a terrifyingly long amount of time." So I'm so I'm always so skeptical of yeah. that that I want the checks and balances but having said that and and i will assume the same is is true on the female side there's no ill intent i don't i don't think on mass i don't think that there's anybody trying to do anything wrong but it's like and this will be interesting i have never thought this before or said this out loud i'm I'm merely thinking of this in real time and i've heard you speak very warmly of people that are willing to sort of risk um you know looking stupid by floating something when it's early stages caveat 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 um but When I think of communism, that feels more feminine to me, Mm -hmm. like, hey, everybody should get the Frisbee for an equal amount of time. Everybody should feel good about, you know, playing like I get it. Whereas that has not borne out when you get like a masculine group, which is the sort of tyrannical. I get all the women and you get nothing. I get all the money and you get nothing. Right. So Mm -hmm. I'm not pitching either as a good idea. Right. Um, But the. The covert, to use your words, I I think is very apt movements that we're seeing now where it's like you can tear somebody down. They they later got sort of proven innocent, but eh, nobody pays attention to that headline. Right. That headline didn't get any news. And there's what they call whisper networks in the comic book industry where it's like so which by the way, we have to talk about, you write science fiction. I don't wanna derail where we're going right now, but I'm so keen to, to hear more about that. But you hear about these whisper networks where people are trying to erode somebody's credibility. That feels distinctly feminine to me.
1: Mm-hmm, yes. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, how do you erode status in a uh, male hierarchy? It tends to be right out in the open. Like every, every, everyone knows that uh, dude A has come up to dude B and said, you know, I, I want your position and I'm going to tell you that and we're going to do it. And if it's again, if it's baboons, it tends to be about f- fighting. You know, it tends to involve teeth and biting and people don't do it that way. But, um, you know, we, we have other tools. We have other weapons or tools. And, um, you know, it's it is. Notable that women don't engage in physical fights in the same way. And when and when we do, you know, that is we have special words for it, right? Like it's a cat fight. It's it's a different sort of mm-hmm. thing. So how is it that the changes in status happen? It's it's not it's not by those same rules, which also means that it's just this this won't be easy. It it won't be easy to have, say, a team of eight people. In which, you know, half-ish are men and half-ish are women and all are ambitious and hard-charging and beyond competent and super smart and have different things that they bring to the table. And also the men have a way of going about things that is going to be more direct and that will sometimes um, be more likely to hurt the feelings of the women at the table. And the women are going to are more likely to couch things in terms of, well, I think, or don't you think that or would it be okay if and those kinds of even even just linguistic couchings make it easier for the women to be ignored by the men when they're like focused on a thing. Oh, well, she just asked if I could, but I can't. Like, no, actually, I was telling you you needed to. And that was just my way of saying it, because this sort of more this female way of interacting is maybe more likely to be thinking about your feelings and actually I'm not supposed to be thinking about your feelings. I just needed to say it. But you know, both of us, you know, both of us, all of us need to somehow be engaging with, okay, there's not just, there's not just the one way of interacting right now. And I mean, I think what, what you said earlier is just exactly right. And I, I've never heard anyone say it before, which is that when you have been on all male teams, it's easier. And when you've been on mixed sex teams, uh, it's more productive. And, you know, I just, I so hope that that anecdote holds across everything. It's what I'm sort of banking on. And then then the thing is, how do we make the more productive thing, which is actually more fair and allows for everyone, not just half the population, to actually come to come into our own in whatever way it is that we want to be creative, analytical, productive, healing in the world, do so with as little friction as possible. Like how, how do we do it?
0: How do we do it, Heather? (laughs) I asked you. Well, I, I actually have ideas. So running a business, you find that you have to navigate this. Um, you have to find a way. So I, I am again, my obsession. The only thing I think about is I have a goal. Now, if my goal is exciting and honorable, then everybody should be cool with me going hard after that goal. Now, if it's not honorable, then, okay, cool. I get it. But my goal is fulfillment for as, as many human beings as absolutely possible. And when I think about how we get there, I need to be able to hire the best person for, the job, right? So whatever. And obviously the, the way I'm trying to get there is as a media company. So putting out mm-hmm. ideas, uh, which um, I'll, my audience probably has heard me say this a bazillion times, but so you sort of get a sense of where I'm headed. Um, I, when I was like 19, I ended up big brothering this kid in the inner cities for eight years. And it was, it planted a seed is the only true answer. I was too young to sort of make sense of it and to understand like what the hell is going on. Um, and Then 15 years later, I end up having 3000 employees. A thousand of them grew up just like this kid in the inner cities with a a broken mindset. So to me, it it seems And this you want to talk about controversial positions. It seems self-evident to me that poverty is a mindset. There's nothing genetic about it. So if you took a kid that was about to grow up in poverty and it will destroy his mindset and he or she will think in a way that is not useful and you put them in a place where um, affluence is sort of the norm, then they'll grow up with a mindset towards that. Jeffrey Canada, I think, sums it up the best. He said, the biggest difference between inner city kids and kids who grow up middle class is the number of words they hear by the age of five and the ratio of positive to negative. He's like, it's that simple. It just, it does something to the communication circuitry of your brain, which will be so required for you to be successful later in life. Okay, so I'm looking at that and I'm saying, all right, fulfillment's my goal. How do I help these people think in a certain way? And the punchline becomes to build this media company. All right, I really believe in that. I think it's honorable. I think it definitely excites me. And now if you're saying, uh, if, if I pull it off, then you know there's not only personal glory, but it has this positive impact in the world. But if I fail, I go to business. So now I'm just like, okay, I need the best people for the job. I could not care less what they look like, whether they're a male or a female, none of that matters. Are they going to help me to that thing? So Mm -hmm. now it's like, well, if I know I'm going to have a mixed group because mixed groups give you the best outcomes in terms of being productive and that I'm willing to sort of couch the ease that I would get from working, you know, just with people who are like me. There's this great quote in business. If you and your business partner think alike, one of you is useless. So it's like I I can't have people who think like me. I already bring that to the table. Mm -hmm. So now it becomes a game of rules of engagement. So I've actually created a document that says this is how we fucking deal with things. And one of the questions that I ask in the interview is when was the last time you were offended? And I want to know what offends people because I have a threshold. If you're fucking easily offended, I can't deal with you. Like the odds that someone is going to offend you, whether intentionally or not borders on a hundred. And so if you're dialed to 11 on that, it's gonna be destructive to the group. So the John Wooden idea, if I don't look for the best players, I look for the best fit on the team.
1: Mm-hmm. And then write it down.
0: What are your rules of engagement?
1: Oh, that's good. Um, so what you just said, you don't look for the best players, uh, John Wooden, you don't look for the best players, you look for the best fit on the team. So to me, so I, I'm, I'm flipping the tables on you a little bit here. Um, I'm curious, I, I I used to build teams in a different way when I um, when I was a college professor and I would take students on study abroad. So I would I would get to know some larger group of students and then I would call the group um, f- to choose the people who I thought were mature enough, capable enough, you know, team players enough. Also, yes, intellectually up to the challenge, but really that was the least important thing to take on some you know four six eleven week journey through panama or ecuador into the amazon you know really remote places that required that we were all we all saw each other as human beings worthy of respect for whom every single other member of the team would actually go out of their way to help uh but at the same time i also was looking for people who um, when they had a problem their first question was not who do i ask for help but how do i solve this myself right and this you know this there are environments when you actually do want people to be asking for help because that's going to increase group cohesion, right? But if you are, if you're literally in the rainforest, if you're literally in the jungle, and uh, you know you you lose a boot, um, you you know you may well need help from other people, but your first thought shouldn't be you know where's my professor? Where's you know where's the person in charge? You know, understand that you yourself are the person in charge first. Um, so I'm I'm. I know that my rules to my, my students in advance, after I had chosen them from among the people who thought they would be a good fit and said, okay, now we have to create this coherent unit, I was really talking to them all as individuals and the part about um, like who like how the team actually came together, I kinda still black boxed. I'm I'm not sure I have that part written down. So I'm I'm wondering what what you understand about the dynamics of the team itself as different from the individuals that you choose to put on it? Like, is it just about skills? I think it's probably not. I think it's about personality too.
0: It's more about personality than it is skill set. You explained it perfectly. So um, you may just have better words for exactly what I'm doing, which is I do look at who they'll be working with admittedly Mm -hmm. and saying like, okay, are they going to get along with these specific people? Yeah. But because I am so gung ho about nobody feeling like, all right, if you're the copywriter, don't think of yourself as a copywriter. Like, look, what are the problems this company faces? Can you help? Like help anywhere that you can help. And I've moved people around because it's like, oh, you were hired for, like we had this one guy who was hired for marketing. He was this extraordinarily talented artist. And so he's Mm -hmm. now on our art team and it's just amazing. Um, and, and had no idea that, you know, that was his skill set. So I think about who they're working with in particular, but more it's what you're talking about, the layover test. Do I wanna be around this person? Like, Are they fun? (laughs) Are they open-minded? And then the the lose a boot thing where it's like, are you self-directed? Are you self-reliant? Do you, are you what I call an unrelenting problem solver? So if you give me an unrelenting problem solver, and say, but they don't know, like you, let's say you need um, a director of marketing and hey, this person, they don't really know marketing, but they're an unrelenting problem solver. Would you consider them? Absolutely. Now I'd rather have somebody who's experienced as a director of marketing and they're an unrelenting problem solver, but if they are easily offended, um, they are, you know, they hit an obstacle and they stop, but they have like a great pedigree, I'd still be like, ah. Uh, Like, I just don't know where I'm gonna be tomorrow. Business changes too fast. And so just because you're good at something today doesn't mean that thing will be necessary tomorrow. Like, so I have this thing called Impact Theory University where I teach people how to be good at business or just normal life. And I keep getting pressed to create like these really narrow courses, like teach a copywriting course or teach a marketing course. And I'm like, you don't understand. This stuff changes so quickly. Whatever I teach you today, will cease to be interesting in six months for sure. So I could walk somebody point by point how I built my last company, which ended up being a billion dollar company is crazy. It would seem so dumb because none of it would work now. And so getting to the, the what you're calling a black box of like, there is a lot of sort of mystery to that, but there are fundamentals to how a person approaches. Like talking to um, Brett when I had him on, there's no question. If Brett and I sat together long enough, I'd be like, oh, we actually really disagree sort of violently about these things. Mm-hmm. But because you're so open-minded and I just wanna know what's true, it's like we can get along so well. And so I'm always looking for people that have that sort of openness. They wanna know what's true. They're not dogmatic. I'm so terrified of dogma in my own life that you know finding people who think like that, I'll take that all day.
1: Oh, yeah. So, I'm reminded of another anecdote. Long, many years ago, Brett and I were um, hanging out with my dad, who's who's dead now, but he was a computer engineer. Uh, he was born in 1938, so he was an early computer engineer. And he basically, he, he spoke hardware and he spoke software, and he, in large part, did the interface between the two. So, he was basically the translator between the hardware guys and the software guys and women. He had a lot of um, female programmers, actually, that he worked with. And one of his jobs was hiring... Um, hiring programmers. And he was describing at one point the what he looked for in programming in 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 people who were going to be programming for him. And you know, he said a lot of the things that you've said here and that I've said, and at some point, Brett said, you know, aren't you forgetting something? You know, they obviously need to know how to program. And he said, oh, no, no, I can teach them to code. That's not the important thing at all. So I mean, I think I think this is what the best a, I think team leaders and, you know, successful entrepreneurs and business people are educators whether they know it or not. So they are they are they are creating environments in which, you know, the the guy that you hired into marketing and turns out to be an amazing artist, presumably he knew that, but no one else had ever been able to see it and also have the power to help him realize it. So That's that. That is a big role that I see as an educator. Like, yes, there is an opening up of um, horizons because you reveal things that the person that the would-be student has never seen before. But a lot of it is just getting out of their way. Like opening, opening. It's like opening up a highway. Meaning, like you can go now. Like you, you can, you can go as far as you want. And my job is to to show you the various off ramps and to see which ones you actually do a good job on. And, you know, your, your artist, who's more an artist than a marketer um, you know, that, that story is, is wonderful in part two, because it's clear in you telling it that there's nothing in you that's saying, and that's better, you know, or, and that choice is inherently a better choice. It's a better choice for him. And, you know, this, this also is, the mistake that people who naively think about evolution make. What is best? You know, this is this is this theme that I keep coming back to in our conversation here. Like, no, art isn't better than marketing. You know, like I may have a preference for it. Many people might have a preference for it, but it is not inherently better. For that human being with passion for and skill at art, it is a better choice for him. That does not mean that is a better choice for every human being. Some people will be better at and have more passion for and and skill in marketing, and therefore that's a better choice for them, totally absent any moral judgment about marketing and art in the abstract.
0: The US dollar's value is being rapidly eroded, and if you wanna have at least some of your investable dollars and assets that can't be inflated, you should look at gold. Gold has proven to be a good long-term store of value since literally the Roman times, which is why even though I have the vast majority of my holdings in crypto, I have a percentage of my portfolio in gold. And if you're interested in learning more about gold, I recommend you contact American Hartford Gold. If you tell them I sent you, you can get up to $15,000 of free silver on your first qualifying order. Click the link in the description or call 866 934 four zero zero five or text impact to six five five three two again that's eight six six nine three four four zero zero five or just text impact to six five five three two or click the link in the description please remember there is always risk involved in investing and there is absolutely no guarantee of any kind Hmm. this may seem like a random question but um, something you said just triggered this one, I am surprised that you left unperturbed, you'd still be a college professor. Um, just given that my value system, which is not better, it is just different. I'm so obsessed with scale. I am so glad yeah. that you are now doing things on the internet. Otherwise, I never would have encountered your mind and the way that you think and approach things. Um, what made you so good? You were the Um, I don't know for how many years, but you were rated the number one teacher at Evergreen before you departed. What was it that made you so good?
1: Well, I, I appreciate, I I appreciate that. Um, first, let me respond to the first thing you said, which is for a few years before Evergreen blew up, Brett and I were, were looking around going, how do we, how do we scale this? Like, is it possible to do what we do in these classrooms and in the field for 25 or 50 students? Um, Because we had, it was just a 25 to one student faculty ratio. And so if you were teaching alone, you had 25 students. If you're teaching with someone else, you had 50. And, you know, very occasionally a group of 75. But that is both more students than most people could really form relationships with, but we managed. Um, but it's also a tiny, tiny number of people. And it did feel like as much as those jobs had such tremendous freedom, the other the thing that they had was such tremendous freedom with security, and it turns out the security was false. So um, so it, what they weren't they weren't great jobs after all, but what they allowed was a freedom to explore uh, relationship space. With um, in con in the context of education, with like, almost no resources, like th- this is a public liberal arts college with almost no resources, um, so it was always shoestring budgets. But like, what where can you take people that they don't imagine was even on option? So I I love I'm, I'm a, like simultaneously an extreme introvert and I love connecting with people and I just loved creating these communities where. A lot of students felt, I believe, and I was told by many of them, seen for the first time. And we had a tremendous number of first generation students, um, students eligible for Pell Grants, which means very low income, students with no support from their families, non-traditional age students, veterans, um, just you know, people who had been um, homemakers and were now coming back to school. So, you know, tremendous diversity actually um, of, across most of the demographics that you would expect. And All those along with a certain number of traditional age, you know, K-12 straight to college students in a room together and especially take them out into the field together and start showing them things that are real regardless of whether they care or they know or they understand regardless of what they think. You know, that lizard is sitting on that log, bobbing his head, because he, that is a territorial display, and he is telling males, stay away, this is mine, and he is trying to lure females, and that story that I just said, on top of the observation, we can talk about to what degree it's true here and now and this species and all, but the observation is real and enduring, and nothing that anyone else says, you know, you might have a different angle on it, say, oh, well, he wasn't bobbing as long as you thought he was. Fine. The physical reality is out there, right? Like the physical reality happened. History happened once, regardless of our interpretation of it. Now, let's come together, break bread together, cook together, sit around a campfire, play Frisbee together, right? So we're going to do the... The intellectual stuff, and it's going to be hard and challenging, and I'm going to tell you things like, yeah, genocide evolved and rape evolved, and they're terrible, and we need to do everything in our power to minimize these things going forward in human history, but pretending that they're not evolutionary outcomes is not going to help. So let's talk about all this difficult stuff and, you know, lead you through stuff most people don't want. Like I'm going to teach a bunch of math phobe statistics and that's going to enable you to try to reduce the bias in your thinking. And I'm going to walk you through, you know, in one quarter, you're going to go from seeing a pattern, hypothesizing why you think it's true, creating an experimental design to try to explain, to try to address whether or not your hypothesis is true, collect the data, analyze the data with the statistics I taught you, write up a report which references the primary literature, and speak that, speak your research to the class, like an entire, the entire actual gamut of scientific research, which frankly, even a lot of people with PhDs, don't end up doing because they walk into someone's lab and they get handed a little piece. They get sit, they get told, ah, this is the question we're working on. Um, you're going to collect these data and then we're going to talk about what it means. So I had I assumed I assumed that my 18 year olds and my 25 year olds and my 30 year old students were totally capable, and a few of them weren't. It turns out, or just not in that time, or not with me, or whatever. But the vast majority of them could 100% do it, could rise to the challenge. And the idea that, you know what, this is day one. At the end of week 10, you're all going to have done a complete piece of research. Most of it will have failed. Most of it will be banal. Most of it won't matter. But you will have done a complete piece of research. And you will have that forever after. You'll be able to see and know and go, I did that. Well, sh- shit, if I did that, who knows what else I can do? So that that's part. Of it. Yeah, that's,
0: that's so powerful. So... Um... Given the work that I have done, so in manufacturing, you end up in the inner cities a lot. And then yeah. now that I sort of go around speaking, um, there's my message is look, I used to be, um, I would go home every night from my remedial job and I would lay on the floor of a cheap, unfurnished apartment. I could, I can still remember how it felt and what it looked like to have the cheap nylon carpet, like pressing against my face. And when you get up and it like leaves little marks, because I was just like, what am I doing with my life? And so my story is one of going from sort of broken, hopeless, lost, afraid to, oh, actually like from an evolutionary lens, if you think about the brain, you understand why you have a negative voice. You understand how you can like use it as a habit loop trigger. Like there's just these things that you can do that then prime you to be an unrelenting problem solver, to understand how the acquisition of skills works, to understand that the human animal has chosen a strategy of letting culture influence it, so basically it can learn and grow and adapt, mm-hmm. even you know after it's born, even after it's an adult, it's like, so cool. Hey, take this, like, and now go do your thing. And so the the kinds of people that that um, are drawn to that message it's really interesting. And the thing that I'm always trying to get them to do is what you just talked about, which is just try this shit. You're gonna blow yourself away. If you go do something, I know you don't think yes. you can. I get yes. it. You have a view of yourself. You're me, lost, scared, broken, uh, just convinced that you're not good enough, smart enough, whatever. But if you go do it, like it, it, it can be such an intense paradigm shift for people. Yeah, And just getting people to take that first bit of action. Um, and You've talked a lot about helicopter parenting and I feel like, oh my God, that we're living through this nightmare of people are so afraid to try things. They actually conflate language with violence. Right. <laughs> You're never going to try anything yeah. like that. That's a level of like paranoia. So if I were to have, let's say, taken one of your kids who I know you did not raise this way. But I took them when they were very young, yeah. and I helicopter, snowplow, whatever the you know parenting term is, and then I handed them back to you at 26. Mm. Brain is done developing. Yeah. Yep. But you now, your heart aches to help them. How do you break them out of that mode of thinking?
1: Oh, that's wow! What a great question. Somehow, not something I had ever considered before. What what if I were meeting my Zach or Toby now, 16 and 14, 10 years from now, having been raised in a very different More typical, I think, now parenting family. Well, probably A, also it is true that they, you know, one or both of them would have been given drugs for their activity, right? You know, because they would have been diagnosed with ADHD and would have have been given speed. So that's a whole other rabbit hole that we can go down. But Mm. so, you know, I meet them at 25, 26. Um, They are, you know, kids totally capable but hasn't lived and hasn't had to solve problems for himself. And I like, yes, I also did academic things. And for a kid like that, for a young a young man like that, often those young male students at first had a very difficult time turning in assignments on time. Um, they, you know, or, or they were just rule followers, but they did it sort of to the letter and never expanded beyond and never showed me what else they could do and how where they could take it that was more interesting. Um, but, I think week two of almost every class that I taught, we did a five-day field trip, somewhere just domestic, somewhere um, until the very last couple of years, somewhere where there was no internet or cell service. That became more and more difficult to find. Um, in 2016, 2017, um, but from 2002 through 2015 or so, uh, when I when I was teaching, it was it was pretty easy. So you go to Eastern Washington, Scablands of of Eastern Washington, or up to the San Juans to uh, Moran State Park on Orcas Island, or or uh, even to the Oregon coast, and Yes there's academic work and you know largely I would be teaching them the beginnings of how to be animal animal behaviorists how to observe and once you can you know take the observer out as much as possible you know and observe without bias how to take data that is that is careful and that doesn't include your interpretation in the data that's the academic part it's not the main reason to go spend 5 days you know with a group of 25 or 50 people uh, in, you know, rustic cabins where they are, they have been broken into groups. They've chosen their own groups before we go, their food groups. And every food group, uh, has, is taking responsibility for one or two meals, um, to feed everyone. And we have access to a commercial kitchen and, you know, I give them, I give them, I, I give them my little spiel in advance. And I say, you know, we've collected enough money. I'm giving you enough money back that you can buy real food. I want you to buy, you know, I want you to buy real vegetables and real grains and real meats and, you know, or, organic when you can and all of this. And, you know, don't buy the canned stuff. I don't want to see, you know, blue drinks on the table. Um, it, but, you know, do, do what you know to do and then watch what everyone else is doing. They cook together. We all eat together. We all have opinions about the food that we've eaten by this group and that group. And we sit around the campfire together and at each meal I sit with different groups and yes there's academic work on these field trips but I make myself available without ever saying it really you know it's not office hours I'm having office hours now so if you want to talk to me you can come no that's terrifying to people and people only come to office hours you know if it's called office hours they come to office hours if they know they have an academic question right But if you sit around on the grass after a Frisbee game or after a meal and you say, okay, the next academic thing, is at two? It's now one. I haven't said anything about where I'll be, but I'm just sitting here. And I look approachable. And that 26-year-old young man or young woman, it's easier for me to imagine because I've got two boys, a young man, um, comes to me and just starts talking, then it's easy. It's, it's, it's downhill from there because as soon as they start talking and saying, well, actually, I do kind of want to do X. Oh, really? What? Why? Well, because I you know I once saw it on in a movie, or my friend did it, but I wasn't allowed to because my parents didn't didn't let us do that. Or you know, more often in the case of what I would see was we just didn't we just didn't have the money. you know, like I said, we had a, we had a tremendous number of low income students. Um, and so I'd say, okay we let's let's figure out how to make this happen without the resources. But l- by let's, what I mean is, I want to clear as many hurdles from your road as possible, but this is you. This is you doing this such that when you are done with this process, you can look back on it and say, I did that, and therefore I can do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So that's that's definitely an incomplete answer, but it's part of it. It's just like sort of being open, letting have haven't there be a space, like on a field trip, where there is nothing expected of anyone else in terms of what they're doing at the moment. And maybe they're off smoking a joint and maybe they're off showering and, you know, maybe like who knows. Right. Um, And, you know, I I hope not they weren't supposed to, but like, I'm sure that was going on. Um, And maybe the fact that I'm sitting there and they're sitting there and there's, there's a possibility for some relationship to happen. That's serendipity and leaving ourselves open for serendipity is one of the big pedagogical things that I started to do with intentionality, probably for the second half of my being a college professor, when I realized that that was actually, that that's something that you can't then quantize, you can't count how much serendipity did I allow? Like, no, (laughs) you have to leave white space. You have to leave the open space and then be open to what
0: happens. That is, uh, this may be the the sort of most stereotypical male versus female response to that. So Mm -hmm. if I was in the same position and you said, Tom, look, Zach or Toby, this is what happened. I need you now to get them, you know, in line with this set of values, let's say that you handed to me. I'd be like, all right, Rad, you cool if I kidnap them? Because I'm going to take them for a year onto an island and I'm going to take seven or eight people that are exactly that. I'm going to put them on this island with those people. And just because those are the only people around, they're going to want their respect so much Mm -hmm. that whatever the values are of that group, they're going to conform to the values of those people. And there's a great quote, I forget who said it, but when you go to a company, do not for a second think that that company will conform to you you are going to conform to that company i Mm -hmm. thought oh man that's so important for people to think about when they're taking a job or whatever it's like man you might think that you were just this killer agent of change but let me tell you like you will very rapidly conform to the norms of that little group that you're in and that to me like when i think about the isolation that happens in social media is beyond terrifying yeah but whatever Ecosystem you create for yourself, you're going to conform to the norms of that group. And that shit is so scary to me. And you you and Brett talked about and I thought, whoa, one of the reasons, Heather, that I'm not a parent is I don't think I could put my kids in a situation where they might break their arm. And you gave your kids rules about not getting hurt that I was I was so impressed, but equally shocked. Do you remember the rules that you gave your kids?
1: Yeah, um, and you know, we ended up formalizing some slightly different rules for our students on study abroad as well. Um, yeah, you know, the rules for the boys were um, take risks, take physical risks, and you cannot break your head or your back or your sense organs. You know, your your eyes in particular, those those don't heal, those will not those don't grow back. Um, but you can break an arm and you can break a leg, and it's better if you don't. Um, but you can do it. And you know better if you come real close a couple times and don't end up breaking anything. but it's not a disaster. given where given when and where we live, that is not a disaster. There are disasters that are possible, and those are the ones that we've laid out. So you know, so this this it it trains them for all sorts of things. It trains them to actually learn how to fall. And you know our younger son actually became, became known in the elementary school schoolyard as the boy who bounces he would jump from the craziest high things and he would always get up and run away and people are like my god i wouldn't let my kid jump off something half that tall like well this is what he's inclined to do and he's not the one who gets hurt you know it's the kids who aren't ever allowed to explore who at the point that they do finally take the risk and jump off something much shorter they jump as if their legs aren't aren't springy and then yes they do get fractures because they don't know how to use their bodies they don't know what their bodies are capable of so yeah i mean both of our boys have um have had injuries that have been you know not great but they've they've never hurt their heads or their backs or you know or their sense organs or their eyes and you know they're these you know how you how you end up raising kids the environment in which you raise them is what they know how to do so we we took them to the amazon when they were boy 12 and 10 i think i'm not sure exactly maybe 11 and 9 uh and they because we'd spent so much time in nature with them in uh in north america we trusted them and they were wearing the appropriate gear like you always have to wear rubber boots up to the knees for you know to, to to defer to um (laughs) to deflect snakes should they come at you um and and you know they look they never had that happen but we we trusted them enough that they could run ahead of us on the trail in the amazon and once toby came running back and said giant snake and he had found this huge coral snake which is a which is a deadly snake that we were then able to run ahead and see and certainly there was a moment there of oh my god what have we done (laughs) You know, like, what did we let this child do? This is, I don't remember. He was, you know, seven or eight at the time, I think. And, um, you know, maybe a little older than that. I just can't remember exactly when it was. Um, But... When we were in Quito, which is a massive Latin American capital with um, Latin American driving, uh, we were watching the cars go around some roundabout, and we watched a little kid, maybe three years old, come out of an apartment building and navigate the traffic and go into a little tienda and come out with a bag of something and navigate back and go back. We're like, wow, we don't trust you guys to do that. We trust you in the Amazon, and that little boy probably is not trustworthy in the Amazon because he's probably never left Quito. Um, So, like you, you know what you know because of what you experience. There's just oh, because the, that little kid was Ecuadorian doesn't mean he can do Amazon. He's an urban kid, whereas our boys had and still have more experience in deep nature than they do in urbanity. So, the thing is, yes, we get more flexible as we age, less flexible as we age for sure. Our brains get less plastic. We get more, you know, canalized into our particular ways of thinking. But w- continuing to expose ourselves to more and more experiences that are different from anything we imagined is how to keep that flexibility and it's god it's part of why this you know this this year 2020 and covid 19 and all of the restrictions on mobility um that have been imposed on us as a result are i'm really concerned are just going to further further the mental health crisis uh that is that we are experiencing in our youth, and especially the children who just couldn't spend any time exploring, making new relationships, jumping off jungle gyms, you know, for a while there, even those things were, were, were locked down because it was considered unsafe. My like, God, mm-hmm. kids especially just need to explore. And, you know, the younger you are, the more everything you run into is new. So it's easier to have things be new when you're young.
0: Yeah, I am. Uh, when I think about kids that are in a developmental phase right now, being locked down for this long, man, yeah, ooh, that is super unnerving. What have you guys done? In fact, your kids are like smack bang. Were you guys already homeschooling them, or has this been a total shakeup for them?
1: Yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, I think it's hard for everyone. There, I don't. I haven't talked to anyone who says this is great. My kids love virtual school. <laughs> <laughs> like, this is fabulous. You know, I've heard a few stories. Like, well, you know, we're getting more time together. Okay, good. But um, now our kids are at two different schools, and it's they're neither of them has seen the inside of a classroom since March, and it's we're talking in mid-November, and um, they're 16 and 14, exactly at an age when peer groups and sociality and thinking about the opposite sex um, is all happening, and it's all virtual. Uh, and it's not, you know, the schools are actually in many ways doing a much better job than I was expecting, but it's an impossible job to do really, really well. It's just, Mm. it's not what humans do. You know, this, this conversation that we're having, um, I'm really enjoying and I really want to be able to have it in person with you, right? Like I am this, this makes me want even more than I already did to, you know, sit down with you and, you know, and, and your wife hopefully too. And, you know, and just, and just, and just talk, Right and this is great this is a you know this is a really good second best but it's definitely second best and it's not even close think yeah, that's about crazy. that crazy like for the, the
0: kids. number of cues that we pick up on when you're sharing space that you can't do over the um, over Skype. And like you said, look, I'm so glad that this didn't happen in the early nineties uh, where <laughs> it, whoa, it would have really been deranging and you'd be so isolated and have no way to like connect with other people, especially because I live in a different state than most of my family. Yikes, that would be super gnarly, but still like not being able to share space is is a huge disadvantage.
1: Yeah. Not being, not being able to share space and not being able to travel. And, you know, this is, this is just one of my, my passions, not just for me, but for other people. So another thing that I, that I did, um, which I, um, I implied earlier, but some of my students who I took on study abroad. So I ran four or five study abroad programs, the last of which was this long one that Brett and I've talked about that he and I did together. Um, but I did several earlier and, I helped students who had never left like a hundred mile radius of their birthplace get passports. And I took them to the jungle and I took them to the Andes and I took them to coral reefs and I blew their minds and it was amazing. And, you know, these were mostly kids who, you know, who loved lizards or who loved, you know, just loved nature, who loved, who, who you know, who were, who were into the idea of the kinds of things we were studying. But again, the academics, wasn't necessarily the main thing. So actually just to return, you know, you said you would take um, a kid and put him on an island with eight other eight other young adults and, you know, create a culture to which they create a culture that was admirable to which they then wanted to conform. And I would say that was also that was also part of what I was doing um, just mm-hmm. at the you know, part of what creating the community, creating the culture in the program, the classroom, the fieldwork, whatever, was precisely about, um, you know, the professor has the authority, and it was very useful to walk in and say, do not trust me because I have the authority, because I have the degree, because um, my salary is being paid by the university to whom you pay tuition, and I'll be writing your evaluations at the end. Uh, I must earn your trust. I must earn your respect and your trust. And at some point, it will get exhausting for you to, to question every single thing I say, So, you know, hopefully I earn your respect and trust sooner rather than later. But um, at least at first, don't assume that I know what I'm talking about. So that's one way of giving away authority that I think is very useful. But the fact is that the professor still has the authority to set the tone and to set the culture and to say, no, actually, um, we aren't going to be offended by everything. I like that's that's not a useful way forward. And no, you're not gonna you're neither going to tone police nor language police, but we're going to be respectful always. And we're going to be discussing difficult things. And um, I will tell you um, what kinds of topics we're talking about, but I'm not offering up trigger trigger warnings. This isn't a safe space, like none of that. We're not doing that. but look around and if there if there are people here, who you feel like you just can't be in a room with, think about that, but also if that's really where you are, you need to find a different place to be. Because I'm not changing them because you've got something in your head that tells you that you can't be here.
0: That is literally part of our document where I was saying earlier, you have to write down your rules of engagement. One of the things it says is this is not a safe space. Like this, we're gonna challenge the life out of you. And what you just said about giving away power, a, what a sign of tremendous confidence that, but I have a feeling it's not only confidence in that I know my shit, it's confidence in, I actually wanna know if I'm wrong, like there would be no greater joy than to be surrounded by people who can elevate my game and help me like get to a better place. And that in business, yes. you know, I told my staff, I said, look, I just spent the last almost 20 years fighting to become a CEO. And now that I'm CEO and I'm the one signing your paychecks, like I want, I'm now giving all of that away. I'm not asking you for deference. So the only way that this becomes like I sort of step into the CEO role is we may get to a point where I cannot convince you, you cannot convince me. We need a final arbiter. I will be that final arbiter. Yes. But up until that point, like I I assume the vast majority of the things that I think are wrong and that my current skill set has already taken me as far as it's going to take me. And the only way for me to get where I want to go is if people can show me where I'm wrong, help me get where I'm going. And also I don't scale. So I need other people to come in and be amazing. And the only way to get the best out of people is like you said, you give them that space to try something. So I stole this idea from Ray Dalio. He said, I allow my part or my employees to dent the car, just never total it. And I was (laughs) like, oh my God, that's a genius. So we talk a lot about that. Like, hey, go make mistakes. You are going to cost me money. I get that. I'm all for it. I'm super happy to invest in that. Don't do anything like you said, don't break your head. Don't break your back. Don't damage your sense organs. It's like, there are certain things I don't want you to do. But Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, like, I want you to challenge me. I want you to say, I think that's stupid. So." I tell people um, in my company that I want my feedback aggressive and in public. Uh, And the reason I want it aggressive and in public is not because I think everybody is ready for their feedback to be aggressive and in public, you know, with other people be much more thoughtful. But (laughs) I said, I want you to see even if somebody comes at me and says, Tom, you're an idiot. This is the (laughs) dumbest idea I've ever heard. One, I'm going to be like, first of all, thank you, because so many people are afraid to speak to power. So Mm -hmm. I'm just already grateful that you're not afraid to say what's on your mind. Let me hear your argument. And maybe you're right. And if you are, then I will immediately adopt your way of thinking because it's going to get me to my goal, which again is my obsession. And if I have a good idea and you're wrong, then that idea will be able to withstand that criticism. If it can't withstand the criticism, it wasn't a good idea in the first place. That's right. And so there's like a a sobriety that comes when your house is on the line in a business where mm-hmm. it's like, I'm no longer worried about being right. I just need <laughs> to make sure I don't lose my house and go out of business. Yeah. So that has always been tremendously clarifying for me.
1: Oh, that's, and that's, I've heard you talk before about having sort of discovered by accident the scientific method having realized that some of the principles that you had written uh, were in (laughs) fact a a description of the scientific method and you've just you've just described it again right Um, at some level that exposing our ideas to our friends and our enemies is the only way to help us get better at thinking and to know if our ideas are actually legitimate and you know our enemies are more likely to give us really crap feedback because they're also motivated, um, to, you know, to, to be mean, to, you know, to not be nice to us, but mean or nice doesn't change whether or not the actual thing is true. And so the enemies may actually also be more motivated to find the flaws and, um, and to say the flaws when they find them. So trying to strip, and you know, this is I think this is a more male typical way of receiving feedback so that, you know, this is a challenge that being open and you, even if you can't accept it in the moment, being open to feedback that comes in on a channel that you find offensive, that you find tainted, that you find ugly or gross or whatever, stripping away all the tone. And being left with that nugget of whatever it actually was, if there was one. And, that, you know, in, in the modern, especially in the social media environment, so often a lot of the critique just has nothing inside of it. You strip it, you strip it, you strip it. There's nothing there. And so it was a waste of your time. And it, I think it makes people more resistant to hearing critique. But, you know, honest critique, even when it comes coated in something ugly, okay, maybe in the moment I'm not going to be able to, to calm down, to lower my temperature, to take away the tone that you're saying it in and to consider whether or not you've got the true thing, but it is a hundred percent incumbent on me to at least go away, go private and go, okay, I've calmed down now. I did not like how he said it. I did not like what his motivations were, but is the thing true? Okay. It's true. Well then now what do I do? One thing I at least owe is to tell that person, no matter, no matter how hateful they may be, you know what about that thing you were right. And I was wrong and you know, we we owe that to you know frankly the whole the whole universe and this is i mean this is another rabbit hole that we won't go down i'm sure but one of the problems for instance in in science now is that academic publishing Effectively, the peer review allows for these little cabals to self-congratulate each other. And so it's peer review is exactly supposed to be the exposing of ideas to all sorts of diverse opinions who will tell you, know, you or the publisher that of, of the journal that you want to publish in, oh, that's not a good idea. This shouldn't be published. Or you need to go back and do an experiment with a different design. Mm-hmm. Instead, because people are more and more and more specialized, you get like a group of, I don't know, six, eight, 20, 30 people who tend to peer review each other's articles. And uh, if you want to get a positive peer review next time, even though they're anonymous, they're not really anonymous, um, then you're more likely to give a positive peer review now, even if the work isn't all that good. And so you end up with lower and lower quality of work because you don't actually have outside um, opinion coming in and saying, actually, no.
0: Heather, this is something I am—I'm uh, obsessed with. So, I had a moment of crisis in my early 20s where, um, long story, but at the time, I just wanted to get rich, and so my obsession was getting rich, 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 rich. I showed up every day; that's all I wanted. And I um, also was telling everybody that um, you know I wanted to get rich, so I had this tremendous amount of pressure to sort of live up to that, mm. and. I got into this fight one time with the people who were at the time my bosses and I I started arguing for an idea that I knew was dumb. I knew that it was not effective, but because they were smarter than me and I kept hitting this sort of moment of sort of um, identity crisis where they were smarter than me and I didn't understand it at the time, but I valued myself for being smart. So mm-hmm. here I was sure. constantly... Running into this, like, oh my God, this makes me feel so badly about myself. And so I needed to win this argument because it would make me feel smart if I could get them to do what I wanted. And I remember I had this voice in my head just screaming, You know, you're wrong. Shut up. Like, you know, this won't work. What are you doing? And they finally probably just acquiesced and were like, Fine, we'll, you know, we'll do it that way. Mm-hmm. And I walked away from that going, What is it you actually value? Do you want to be rich? Or do you want to be right? Do you want to feel good about yourself? And I realized I need to feel good about myself. But man, to get out of this weird like conundrum of like fighting for bad ideas just because they're my idea, Mm -hmm. it's not moving me towards my goal. Now, I don't think that my goal was exciting or honorable at the time, but just that I was seeking a goal and it was moving me away from that goal. And so I had this crisis which has since served me incredibly well, which is, I can choose to value myself for something different. So I can choose instead Mm -hmm. of valuing myself or in this case getting published, it's like you've created a pathological value chain where you are incentivized emotionally to have people like your stuff even if it isn't moving the world forward. So they have unintentionally created this, I value myself for my peers' acceptance, but they've never articulated it like that in their head, mm-hmm. either because they've never hit that moment of crisis, which I'm grateful to have encountered in my early 20s, or they hit it and worse, they just like, ah, uh, like shuffled it off and I'm not gonna think about that. Right. And the biggest breakthrough in my life was, be goal oriented. Now, be very, very careful about what you set as your goal, because you can take yourself down some horrifying paths. Mm -hmm. But once you have a goal that's honorable and exciting to you, like you're just even if I fail at this thing, I'm having a great time and it would elevate not only me, but elevate other people. Now it's like, okay, well, if you become a servant, To that goal you're seeking truth you're trying to get better you can own that i'm not yet good enough to achieve that because you don't value yourself for that you value yourself for the sincere pursuit of that thing and so when i see groups like that i want to pull them aside and go you're only fucking up yourself like history (laughs) is going to judge you first of all and then some part of you knows that this is a very fragile existence that any moment somebody could come in and, and like burst that bubble I've just never understood people that want to stay in that like it, it is. I lived there for a long time, so yeah. no judgment that people get there. But it felt it was so anxiety provoking mm-hmm. because it was like, I'm going to be found out. Somebody's going <laughs> to figure out. I don't know what I'm doing, you know, yep. and I value myself for that so much. Just a, a horribly vulnerable position.
1: No, it's it's super vulnerable. And I think, um, unfortunately, academic science has become so much about it that it's very difficult to escape it. And so, you know, you presumably people mostly go into science because they're interested in seeking truth in figuring out what is actually real in the universe whether or not they like it or agree with it and you know maybe in some of our cases so that they can understand what's real in order to make a better world in order to know what is what is true at base so that we can change those things that are changeable and um, the, the publishing system which seems like this arcane little branch but is actually the singular measure um, along with grant getting uh, that scientists are most judged on is so is is such is such this little cluster this little cabal that I described that you just described in a different in a different domain um, that it's it's hard to see how excellent science is actually being done right that um, excellent science is not to some degree actually discouraged it's actually discouraged but it's also um, there's no check on it. There's no outside force in a lot of cases that's saying you could have done better. Like this, this, this really could have been done better. And, you know, like you, you made a point earlier, I can't remember exactly what it was about, but you, know, you, once, once you have a paper out there, that's the thing that gets known. If it gets known at all, if you end up having to retract it because it wasn't true, wasn't right. Very few people hear about that. The paper is the thing people hear about. So I think it was, you were talking about an accusation. You know, random false accusations are made and if they turn out to be false, it's the person's reputation against whom the bad accusation was made is still affected. It never goes back. And so the sort of flip side of that is you get papers out and people know that you had papers out oh having to quietly go oh actually the you know the statistics weren't good or the you know the methods could have been better to actually demonstrate my point this is not the thing that is uh, encouraged by the by the way that academic science works
0: the thing in the culture wars which by the way i never thought i would talk about ever in a million years mm-hmm. um and the, what started drawing me in is how I think it's self-corrosive that people are not setting themselves up for success. And remember my definition of success is fulfillment. So that thing that is resilient to failure, but makes you feel good about yourself. Um, And I've always summed it up saying all that matters in life is not success, money, fame, notoriety, nothing. It is how you feel about yourself when -hmm. you're by yourself. when there's no one there to hype you up or tear you down. Like, what do you think? You think you're on the right path, you're doing good and honorable things like that, that matters a lot. And, so I see people moving in a way that I think will be counterproductive to them achieving that end. And in all of this, the thing in the culture war that scared me the most is hashtag shut STEM. And that's where I was like, I'm sorry, what? Like yeah. there, there is an assault on being logical that I find particularly bizarre as somebody who looks at things from an evolutionary lens, do you have a sense like yeah. what are they doing?
1: <laughs> what are they doing? Um, it's it's a full on assault, as you said. Uh, it is uh, it is both amazing and surprising and not surprising at all when you take a bigger picture and see the various um, the various lines of attack that they're taking. It is it's the same activism that emerges from the same confusion about reality, honestly, which is, you know, depending on how you view it, you know, it's it's sort of emerging from postmodernism, it's this intersectionality, it's critical race theory, it's you know, it's it's all of these sorts of ways of thinking about what humans are, that one of which has as its foundation the idea that we create our reality that um there is i mean the the most extreme form of it is that actually the reality reality doesn't exist absent our um our sense of it and um the, the sort of the weaker forms are there is no judgment free or moral free assessment of things. And therefore, the very scientific method is flawed because it imagines a possibility for objectivity. So I'm, I'm trying to steel man what goes
0: into what's the flaw then in that.
1: What's the flaw in that is that the scientific method is exactly the, you know, if you do it once, if you make an observation and try to posit as many possible hypotheses as you possibly, as you can for what might have caused that, and you actually have a complete solution set of hypotheses, and then you create a good experimental design that actually can allow you to delineate between those hypotheses, and then you collect good data, and then you do the appropriate analysis on those data, then what comes out at the end is still just one result right it just tells you that under these circumstances at this time with you know a flawed human being doing the work this is what i this is what i found and yes we use statistics but you know you know every at every step in the process there's the possibility for error and the thing about the scientific process that is not as often talked about is that it is inherently cyclical. You have to do it and do it and do it and do it again. And the modern... The way that science gets funded now, there's almost no impetus to redo work, right? To have some other lab across the country or across the world do the same kind of work that you just did, unless it, honestly, unless it has medical implications, right? Unless there's sort of money and lives on the line. So for most work, it gets done once. Um, if it's if it's good, and you know, depending on what that means, it'll get published, and then no one ever goes back and looks and and looks at it. So there's a lot of I'm sure 100% that there are a lot of results out there that are published that people are basing other research on that aren't actually true, that don't hold, simply because even though the original research may have been completely well-intentioned and the people doing the work tried to do everything right, there was just some error, some problem that they couldn't see. And because the work, because no one ever tried to replicate it, we didn't see that it wouldn't replicate. So... It's the replication part of the scientific process that is what protects us from the idea that we, that we can't be objective. No, individual humans can't be fully objective. We have to recognize our biases. Our, you know, we are, of course, seeing the world entirely through our senses. But you take my biases and your biases and that guy's biases and her biases and you all come together and you, you apply your different biases to the same problem. If you come up with the same answer, over and over and over again, you have a good sense that the asymptote that you're approaching is truth, is, is reality, right? And so that doesn't pretend that we're objective, but it does say the foundation that if you don't agree with this, I don't know what kind of conversation we can have, there is an objective reality out there. There is. How close are we to discovering it? In some places we're really close, in some places not at all. In some places, I'm sure, I think we're closer than we actually are, and something will get turned on its head. I would put a tremendous amount of money on, you know, the theory of natural selection not being overturned ever, any time, right? But there are a lot of other things, even you know, within within biology that we probably think are true that aren't. That doesn't mean the objective reality changed. It means that our understanding of what it was changed. So shut down STEM is terrifying because it's coming from people who are credentialed in and practicing as scientists, which means that they either really don't understand what science is, in which case, what are they right at What are they doing? Or this is a bad faith effort. This is a, it's a power grab. And, you know, the, the, all the language of postmodernism is about power. So that wouldn't surprise me. But it's it's disingenuous is the kindest word I can put on it in that case.
0: Yeah. The, the word that I want people to develop a nice healthy obsession with is utility mm. and utility. Again, it comes down to your goal. So what's your goal? And if their goal is power, then, Hey, maybe there really is a lot of utility in what they're doing and shut down STEM and all that. But then we need to put the goal out on the table. And to me, yeah. the only way to navigate the quote unquote culture war is to put our goals on the table. And now we can talk about the goals, right? So the goal that freaks me out is um, equity or equal outcome, right? I'm all about equal opportunity. I, I have literally given my life. My wife and I could have bought an island and retired and never worked again. And yet we step back to the table before all this kicked off and said, what we care about is, look, there are these people in the inner cities, they are really fucking struggling and their zip code is the number one predictor of their future success, not even their IQ. Their IQ would already bother me. But the Mm -hmm. fact that their zip code is more predictive of their future success than even their IQ, I was like, that is a world I can't live in. Mm -hmm. So what's the thing? And I already talked about it earlier, but it's like getting people to think in a way that's gonna be useful for them to hit their goal. And I'll shorthand that to what Carol Dweck calls a growth mindset. Like if you have a growth mindset, you're in that relentless problem solving mode. And you know, you're going to go about as far as a human with your, um, hand that you were dealt in terms of intellect and stuff like that, you're going to maximize that or get to as close to maximizing that as possible. And so when I think about, all right, if we put that goal on the table, now we can assess like, what does that look like? How do you have to get there? And we can just debate yeah. the realities of, okay, one, is that a desirable end state? Two, if we even agree that that's a desirable end state, then how do we go about getting it that sidesteps tyranny, right? Mm-hmm. So, cause the earliest discussions are gonna be, oh, you can get there, authoritarian, like rule, clamp down on everybody, take away from people that achieve too much, give to people that have achieved too little, like we could talk through exactly what you'd have to do. And we can ask, has this experiment been run? Yeah. In that case, yes, it has. What have the <laughs> outcomes have been, you know? So there, it it becomes a game that can actually be played. But when we won't like state, okay, I am trying to achieve this state and make people say it in a sentence <laughs> because man, people will waffle. And it's like one thing that I've trained my team to do is nobody is more prone to waffling than I am. But I, when I have something that matters, I can give it to you in a sentence. And when mm-hmm. you can state something that clearly, now we can aim to it and we can measure whether we're making progress on it or not. And that's why I feel like we're in this fucking death loop of like yeah. people talking around each other, changing words. It's like, oh my God, what is happening?
1: Yeah, what is happening? Um, it's not entirely good faith is is a big part of it that um, I think I do think that there are germs of good ideas and reasonable critiques at the foundation of pretty much all of this culture war stuff but it is cloaked and in and driven by uh, sort of a- abusive power seeking at this point and you know the thing the thing that both brett and i have said a number of times is that it looks very much like there is not people are not seeking some the bad faith actors who are largely driving the conversation and yelling the loudest they're certainly the loudest and so they get they get more of the airspace than they deserve um, are not actually trying to end oppression they're trying to turn the tables they're trying to reverse the direction the polarity of the oppression that has historically existed and and also define define all of these uh, power relationships in as simple uh, terms as possible often and often these are, wrong, right? They Or they just ignore a tremendous amount of nuance of where power actually lives. So, um, yeah. I, part of part of why it's hard to fight back against is that people want to assume that when someone says something, even on social media, even from an anonymous account or a non-anonymous account, but it's a person you don't know and you're never going to meet in real life, they want to assume that it's coming from a place of honesty and uh, increasingly that's not true. So um, you know, how is it? I mean, I, th- I think I think interestingly you and I probably did very similar things in your, you know, team in, in our team building uh, work, actually, and you know, team building for business, team building within educational programs, academic programs for the undergraduates. Um, on a team in real life with 10, 20, 30, 40 people, you can see and you don't always see it early on, and they can hide, but you can see when someone is not doing what they say they're doing, when they're up to no good, right? And I'm not talking about lazy or slacking. I'm talking about like sociopathic behavior, right? These people are rare, but they exist. And it's, you, you, you nev- it, the reason it's effective is that you never assume that someone is going to be coming from that place. We assume that we look into people's eyes and they see us the same way we see them. And a very few people in the world don't. I think that lacking the real life interchanges such as exists on social media allows more and more people to act that way. To basically have a facultative, which is just as opposed to obligate, but like I can, I could take it on, I could put it on, I could take it off a facultative sociopathy, in which they regard other people, these other accounts that they're interacting with, um, as if they're not quite human, right? And so we have this like dehumanization, where we're treating people like they're like, like we're parts, like you're white, and you're male, and you're cis, and you're straight, and you're successful. And, you know, Okay, those are all true. But is that is that the best description of you that I could give in that many words? No. In no way, right? And yet those things that I just said about you, for instance, will be the categories that these these bad faith players and that many people in the culture wars right now want to use to entirely define you. Not just start not just as a starting place, but just like and that's it. We're done. Now I know everything I need to know about you. Really? Like that's never been the case in human history before that though the five demographic descriptors were sufficient because we're all, we're all individually amazing and distinct.
0: Very, very, very well said. Um, I have to ask you write science fiction. Why aren't you publishing science (laughs) fiction?
1: Well, um, so when I started college, I wanted to write science fiction. That that was my goal. That was when when you were um, lying face down on the carpet with a nylon imprint on your face, uh, with with a goal. I had a goal, which was I'm going to write science fiction. I love science. I love writing. Writing is writing is one of the things that that brings me the most joy in the world, and um, and has for since I was a teenager. That's what I wanted to do. Um, so I was a literature major and I was taking astronomy and geology and I was driven pretty crazy. This would have been the late eighties, early nineties. Um, I was driven pretty crazy by the literature classes and the writing classes that I was in because they had what I didn't have the words for then, but sort of the kernels of this new, this postmodernism that has now taken over the Academy and has now taken over the media and tech companies and is, is moving out into the world. Um, it was, we weren't allowed and you know this this is just one particular way of approaching literature and so i was just in one little bubble but we weren't allowed to just read the texts and focus on the texts we had to bring in all of the truth about the author's life and um and interpret it through his usually politics and the and and such and i thought you know i i I see a value in that, but I also want to be able to experience the art, the product, the you know whatever it is, as it is. Because if it can't stand on its own, then it's really not worthy of being called literature or art or whatever it is. And then over in my writing classes, I was told literally on the first day of college, I walked into my creative writing class, and there was a list of genres on the board. And it was like detective fiction, romance, sci-fi, fantasy... And the teacher went up to the board and put an X through them and said, "We don't do that here. We don't. We don't so do that, genre um, fiction. Yep, we don't do that here." And I thought, God, why not? Okay, maybe I have something to learn. I um, mean, I had, I had been taking as a high school student. I had been taking some classes at UCLA and sci-fi. I was like, I think we do do that in college. I, you know, I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure we're allowed to do that. Um, but this teacher wanted very staid, very sort of generic in my mind, easy to predict sort of boy has dog, boy loses dog, boy gets dog back stories. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm up for a good tearjerker every now and again, but it's hardly the only kind of story I want to read, right? And um, I've heard you also talk about narrative, excuse me. And, you know, changing people's minds through narrative is one of absolutely my my passions i love narrative i deep i delve into narrative tremendously and my sense was i know science i, I speak science and i love to write i can affect people how people view possibility how, how people view what is true or what the possible is through narrative through science fiction so within a couple of years i thought you know what this is not, this is not working for me. This literature major thing, at least in this, in this climate, isn't working for me. Also, I see that I'm going to need to live in order to have things to write about, that just identifying as a writer, just being a writer, sort of training as a writer doesn't inherently give you the experiences to write about. So um, long, long story short, which, you know, like I could, I could tell you over drinks at some point or something. Um, I ended up pursuing a PhD in biology in evolutionary biology, which also allowed me to travel and to, you know, I spent over a year, over a few field seasons living in a tent in Madagascar and I did work in Central America and, um, you know, I got, I got all of the experiences that I was hoping for and, you know, and, and still crave and, and want more of. And then took a job in academia because this job at Evergreen seemed amazing and knew then, okay, what I want, I, I still do want to be writing the science fiction. And our kids came along pretty quickly, and I was basically i was I was teaching. I was being an educator of evolutionary biology, and I was being a mom. And that's what I did. And then literally, my first sabbatical in fifteen years of teaching came, the last two quarters, as it turns out, that I was at Evergreen in early 2017, and I had it—I had it all planned out. I'm like I'm gonna—I'm gonna see if this thing that I've had in the back of my mind that I want have wanted to do forever is actually something I can do or am I deluding myself? Because maybe I am. I don't, who knows? I know when I'm distracted, when I'm in the heads of 25 or 50 undergraduates so fully, I cannot take myself out of that and take myself out of parenting and delve into character development and, and, and write narrative. So while I'm on sabbatical, I'm going to write a science fiction novel. And I did. And I wrote it. I wrote the first draft in three months and I literally finished the second draft the day that the riots broke out at evergreen oh, literally on may 23rd 2017 and i had you know i already had some of the agents i was going w- i had i was contacting i was going to try to start sending it out and then everything in our world fell apart and just mm-hmm. became a totally different whirlwind of experience so i am super grateful i have this i have this book that I'm still very interested in getting back to that I love. Actually, the, the, idea is it's a, it's humans searching for other evolutions of consciousness in the galaxy. And, um, I will, I will not tell you whether or not they find it. Um, and so it, you know, it, my, my pitch in what I wrote to agents was most great science fiction gets the physics right, but gets the biology wrong. This gets both right. So, you know, I, I created another planet in which I, you know, I, I had great fun i went downstairs at one point while i was writing it to brett i said okay i got my spreadsheet i know exactly what the size is and how far it is and what kind of star it is and it's like you you know you can't put a spreadsheet in a novel (laughs) (laughs) like i know but i now know exactly what this planet looks like from like the astronomical and physical perspective and now from that i can build the life on it i can i can create what the life on that planet could potentially have looked like given you know even just like what spectrum of light the star was emitting and therefore what kinds of sense organs the life on that planet might have um, might have evolved so that's i've i've really only written this one this one thing which is in you know fully drafted but would require me to go back and spend real time with it again before i send it out to anyone at this point
0: man well as somebody who is um, I mean, the whole reason impact theory exists is ultimately to create fiction content. Um, And uh, sci-fi is our sort of core um, genre that we play. in. we only do genre fiction. Uh, So (laughs) we're we're the exact opposite of your teacher. (laughs) Um, I really hope that that makes it into the world someday. Um, Heather, this has been a tremendous pleasure. Your mind is extraordinary. If you're, science fiction story is anything like you direct to camera. uh, It will be an amazing read. So I really, really do hope that it makes it out there someday. And if I can be useful to you, by the way, in any way, shape or form with that, let me know. I would do it in a heartbeat. Uh, But thank you so much for spending this time with me today.
1: Thank you so much, Tom. It's been a tremendous pleasure.
0: It was absolutely phenomenal. Guys, if you aren't watching the Dark Horse podcast, which she co-hosts, man, get on it. It's amazing. Check out her Patreon, by the way, which is a has a bunch of really interesting information on there. Um, And the deeper you go into her world, the more you are going to come away with. Profound insights, realizations, uh, a bigger heart. I mean, it's really, really incredible. uh, Somebody at her intellectual level and with her sort of spirit of compassion is pretty extraordinary. And speaking of extraordinary things, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.